Hi, I'm Bushal Tafrato. And you're listening to Embrace of the Margin podcast, a space where I talk to researchers, scholars, and practitioners on the ideas that mobilize their work. Some of my research interests are on topics related to socio-spatial inequalities, the politics of space, and the practices of inclusion and exclusion. My guest today is Dr. Miguel A. Martinez, who is a professor of sociology at the Institute of Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University in Sweden. My first encounter with Dr. Martinez's scholarly work was during the writing period of my master's thesis. His trajectory in research work on urban sociology, urban movements, activism, and housing in European cities provided me with many insights while writing on the production of leftist squatter movements in Berlin. I know you've been active in the squatter scene since the late 80s, and you wrote and researched and contributed to various work on this in cities in Europe, and you also tried to look for similar spaces in Asia while you lived in Hong Kong. Since I also work on socio-spatiality, can you tell me a bit more about what really started it all? Was there a certain activity or event or emotion which made you or encouraged you to join these spaces? Well, I think my interest or my main motivation started because I was involved in leftist politics in general. I was very curious about how to do the revolution, let's say, or how to change things in my surroundings. So all of a sudden, when I started the university, I found that there were squads around. I mean, political squads and very politicized uh, squatted social centers. I didn't know much about squatting for housing at that time, but I knew that in these squads, there were many activities like uh, food, meals, um, film screenings, talks, and, and they were also part of demonstrations about different topics. So uh, I approached them and I, I became more and more involved. What are the things that politicized you more in these spaces? On the one hand is the practice, because the fact of occupying houses is a challenge to private property, but it's also a challenge to other people, to the government. So you want to change lots of things by the practicing that, by occupying a house, by trespassing. But especially if you do it in a very open way and you announce that, you are telling other people that you are not just there only because you are running out of money or you don't want to pay rent. It's because you want to do many other things. And immediately you find out that many of the spaces of the squads, at least in social centers, are open to other collectives. So you share the space that you have occupied which is not just for yourself, it's for other people to do things or for other people to live in some cases. Mm-hmm. I think it's a strong practice of cooperation, a strong practice of challenging the power holders. And also it's a strong message to society that you can change things that apparently are so consolidated and, and also so crucial in the reproduction of inequalities like private property and the access to housing or the access to venues where to organize stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The other thing that contributed very much to my politicization is all the kind of information, debates, uh, fan scenes or magazines or uh, documents or discussions that you are exposed to when you attend meetings, talks, film screenings, or you are involved in certain political campaigns. So I think this is a great school for learning and for developing your own ideas and rationality about social injustice and the city. So that was a fantastic uh, alternative university for me. 
Yeah, that's an, a really interesting point that I also tried to bring up when I was discussing with the interview participants. And they also mentioned this aspect of squats not just being uh, social spaces, but also a school to some of them. There were even people that were 17 and who considered these spaces as kind of a space for them to nurture their own curiosity and knowledge and to always be active in the political scene. In general, I'm more interested in diving into the concept of urban commons and common grounds. Um, so it got me thinking, how can we strive for urban commons or urban common grounds when we're living in an era of privatization and the commodification of all things? And in fact, what is a commons? I think squats can contribute very well to the commons, but uh, there are many squats. There is a great diversity of squats, so it's not easy that to state, to uh, assert that all squads are urban commons, because some are more common than others, and some are just limited to a very specific communities, and others are more open to everyone. But the notion of commons is quite controversial too, because it has many meanings and also different theoretical traditions to understand that. My preference is to define commons as a way as all the means that serve people to reproduce their livelihood, not only housing, but other means of livelihood uh, associated to the basic needs of those who are not privileged in society. So this means that if you are just opening a common space to people who are already privileged, you are not creating an urban commons because you are not satisfying or meeting the needs of people who are underprivileged. To me, it's quite important that every experience of commoning meets the needs of those who are more vulnerable, more deprived, suffering more inequalities and injustice. This involves sometimes initiatives of people from different backgrounds and social class origins, but the goal should be very clear. You need to contribute to that and you need to do it in a way that is completely or as much as possible self-organized. Mm -hmm. And also it should be uh, contesting the surrounding because as you said, privatization and commodification trends are so uh, strong nowadays mm -hmm. that if you are just ignorant of them and you create your island absolutely away from these trends, mm -hmm. you are basically creating like a ghetto or like utopian uh, space completely apart from mm -hmm. that. So I think the struggle against these enclosures and these privatization trends is also an essential feature that defines urban commons. You mentioned the aspect of accessibility and uh, these spaces being in general in favor of the marginalized. In my literature and also while talking to people who dwelled in these spaces, they expressed how they're mostly dominated by white people. There isn't much diversity in these spaces as well. I want to know if you have encountered this in your experience too, or if it came up during your research as well, or is it exclusive to certain kind of squats and not others? It depends very much on the country and the political uh, trajectories of these movements. My experience is that, uh, especially in Madrid, in Spain, social centers were also dominated by natives and white people, but they were not exclusive to them. There were many, many opportunities for migrants and non-white people and poor people also to be involved in these squads. And perhaps I would say in many cases with a higher representation than the percentage they represent in, in the surroundings, in the neighborhood or in the city. 
at least in the case of squat social centers, I notice a lot of a higher representation in many cases. But when it comes to squatting for housing, my experience in France, Italy and Spain in particular is that these movements are mostly led by people with migrant background or racialized people, poor people, and especially women with children. This means something different. So depending on the kind of a squat or a squatting experience and the kind of movement, you find different social compositions. So I, I don't think you can generalize so easily about this social composition. And I want to talk a bit about this aspect of the right to the city, because nowadays the cities look less and less inviting. We read all about the whole concept of the right to the city being inclusive. When I look at how city planners do it, for example, they always aim towards producing an artificial city fully driven by capital accumulation or real estate business instead of promoting communal living, solidarity, or the production of spaces of care. And among the ideas that I want to extend my research to is how squats as a model of co-living can inspire future communal living projects in providing other alternative housing forms and neighborhood plannings. Do you think this is feasible and how can we bring these models on an institutional level? So there are two questions here. One is the, the concept of the right to the city and second, to what extent squads can serve as models for more institutional planning or housing policies. So regarding the first, I think the concept uh, suffers the same kind of confusion as urban commons because there are many meanings assigned to the concept and it has been also institutionalized. So you can find, for example, a festival sponsored by private companies or brands, and they claim that they are creating the, or they are embodying the, the right to the city mm -hmm. because it's a festival open to everyone. Uh, fees are not too high, but they are basically promoting consumption and, and probably they are not catering the, the needs of many people or not necessarily creating more accessible spaces for those who are marginalized because they cannot pay for the transport to access the festival, for example, or they cannot pay for the drinks or so on and so forth. I don't think that the right to the city can, like urban commons or these categories as such in an abstract terms without a strict definition attending the class, gender and ra uh, racial divides in society can be useful. So you need to add a meaning that you consider it's more representative of the mm -hmm. problems or the solutions that most cities need. Another alternative way to understand the right to the city is similar to the way I define urban commons. You need to create conditions for those who are excluded from the city, usually the most marginalized, racialized, and excluded for different reasons in society, to access all public spaces and all the futures of the city, being transport, being housing, being all kinds of utilities. So unless you do that, it's you cannot claim that you are creating or enforcing the right to the city. So that's why it's quite problematic when you listen to these concepts in the official discourse. Somehow this also relates to the, your second question uh, regarding squatting. Is squatting a good way to facilitate the right to the city? It could, but not necessarily. It depends on which are the collectives, what is the, the reach of the squat in terms of geographical uh, scope, if it's beyond the neighborhood, if it's uh, the whole city or the whole metropolitan area, or if different squads are connected with each other in a kind of network and they are, or in a kind of movement and they help each other. So there are perhaps more possibilities for more 
marginalized people to access these spaces and services and resources that you can enjoy in squats. So can you institutionalize that? It's quite difficult. I mean, you are in Berlin now, so you mm-hmm. have the experience that many squats were legalized. Mm-hmm. And some of these legalized squats or housing projects became more conventional housing and more exclusionary housing. Mm-hmm. And some of them remain as very open space, very cheap housing, uh, open to new people, newcomers, and they are still involved in many political campaigns and they are still promoting a different, an alternative city. When you institutionalize a movement, there is no certainty that the movement will continue radical. Mm-hmm. Some parts can continue radical, some parts can become more conservative, we can say. But also you cannot forget that in the beginning of the institutionalization, some people, or usually the most radical branches, uh, don't want to be institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And the problem about institutionalization or legalization processes, they are not the same. But in these processes of uh, institutionalization, the radical branches risk to be more repressed and suppressed mm-hmm. by by the powers mm-hmm. that institutionalize the others. So I think this is the main, the first problem we need to face. And I think it's quite important to keep radical alternatives, in particular squatting as such. But of course, I'm not against in, in, in cases in which there are opportunities to remain radical while keeping more stability or more legal protection. If you can still self-manage and create a reasonable and alternative urban common. Can this process of institutionalization (laughs) be kind of against the political agenda of certain squads? Some squads have uh, a strong political agenda or explicit political agenda, but some don't. And the same political agenda perhaps is not shared by mm-hmm. other squads, even in the, within the same network. Mm-hmm. What I meant is more of not wanting to collaborate with the authorities, basically. Can this be the barrier to a squad to prosper? I guess that many people felt satisfied with these processes mm-hmm. and they found more positive outcomes than negative outcomes. But I guess that there are always negative outcomes in these processes. So you you compromise something. There is a trade-off between the things you lose and the things you gain. So some people think they they gain more through these processes because of this stability. They can have children, for example, or they can plan living with low-paid jobs or with more time for doing creative stuff without being in wage uh, jobs. Mm-hmm. And they think that this legalization of their housing or their building can help this kind of uh, lifestyle or life project. But for other people, they think that the negotiation, for example, itself is a very time-consuming process in which you need to accept and agree with many things that you don't like. People get specialized in politics or professionalized in politics due to that, or people make a professional political career Mm -hmm. uh, out of that. And that creates also divisions within the movement that runs against uh, Mm self-organization and self-management. So there are also risks in the process. And of course, people think that they have to pay more bills or they have to comply with more rules than before. And people think that this is also a loss for the movement. Mm-hmm. I think it's up to every community of squatters to decide which path is the most convenient according to their needs and according to their political agenda and project. This is very interesting because you said something which also came up during my research. One of the things that uh, the people who I interviewed mentioned was 
the aspect of autonomous and alternative living, but also when it comes to the private life within the squat. They expressed how the organizational structures within these squats are vastly different from if we say living in a shared flat or living in a nuclear family structure. There are people that decide to have children and establish co-parenting. Therefore, the child doesn't have one parent, but maybe four. So I wanted to explore further how these spaces try to modify the already existing and socially constructed ideas around gender roles, parenting, the private life in general. And I wanted to know if this came up in your research work as well, or if it was also part of your dwelling experiences in these spaces. Yes and no. I mean, it depends on the age of people uh, who are squatting. And it depends on the type of squatting. As I said before, uh, when there are movements just focusing on squatting for housing, basically they try to help people who already had families in the conventional way of um, having families. Sometimes single parents with children, their main concern is not about creating alternative ways of raising their children, co-living, cohabiting together. This, uh, this can happen. These all kind of opportunities can happen, but they are not the main concern. Mm -hmm. What you see the most is self-help and mutual aid in these uh, environments, because people need to help each other. It's, it's a necessity. It's even an obligation in some movements. I mean, you cannot just occupy and then forget about the community of squatters who are mm -hmm. helping you to occupy. So you still need to contribute to the movement and to occupy other houses or to repair or to be involved in assemblies to solve problems. Mm -hmm. So these issues about parenting in, in housing movements used to occupy houses or buildings are not the main thing, but it's a possibility. And mm -hmm. I saw that more in perhaps uh, more middle class and squat social centers and people with stronger uh, political trajectories who were also questioning many aspects of life and not only institutional politics or private property, but also social relations and sexuality, gender roles and family structures and so on and so forth. So in these cases, I, I did see very often these uh, situations, but not in a very structured manner. Some people had more debates on that and some people were just going with the flow Mm -hmm. uh, and using these public spaces even with a, within the squads for children are incredibly good in terms of developing their creativity and not having just a single reference of parents. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a beautiful also experience and a very positive thing, but not necessarily the most desirable one for people. So again, I think social diversity within a squad is important. Do you think that when it comes to developing these modes of alternative living we cannot achieve that nowadays in cities is it because of the lack of space to experiment and the lack of time the lack of money <laughs> the lack of self-determination as you said before there are many many lacks in our lives it's incredible how exploitation and alienation are colonizing our lives even in times in which countries were growing and growing and growing mm -hmm. so apparently we produce more wealth over the last uh, century but our living conditions as human beings especially for the working class are uh, terrible and more precarious than ever and more uncertain than ever so it's clear that people are searching for alternatives that there is a lot of anger uh, a lot of rage and 
and reaction against these living conditions and this inequality. Mm -hmm. uh, this is unbearable. So squatting is just one of the expressions of this anger. It's not the only one. I think people feel also disappointed with the system in many ways, and they express this disappointment against the system in many ways. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, squatting is too risky for your own life because you, perhaps you need to sacrifice or also to get engaged in very uncertain futures because you don't know what's going to happen if you get evicted. Nothing is easy in that respect, but I think it's necessary to do something. So we should embrace more this anger and refusal instead of stigmatizing it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to understand why, because you can say, okay, anti-vaccination, for example, now... Mm -hmm could represent refusal and anger, mm -hmm. but maybe it's in the wrong direction. And, and it's creating also divides within the left, mm -hmm. which is incredible for me, at least. Mm -hmm. So there are many ways of refusal. I mean, fascists can also think that they are refusing the system or the establishment mm -hmm. when they attack poor and vulnerable people or LGBTQ people. So I don't think that all kinds, all expressions of refusal mm -hmm. are acceptable. I don't think we can tolerate all kinds of rejections to the system. I think we need to strive for the most rational ones, the more cooperative ones, the more mm -hmm. autonomous uh, ones, and those who are creating meaningful and sensible alternatives to the society. So basically, it recreates inequality and meeting the needs of those who are really more in need. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. How do you think we can start in our modern times to claim this right to space and to be the authors of our own geography. Especially now, there is an abundant amount of work on imagining utopian futures and what would utopia look like? I don't like very much utopian thinking in general. Mm -hmm. So I really like to think based on practices that are already there. When I say I see people squatting, I say, okay, let's expand squatting as much as possible in a meaningful way. We shouldn't expand squatting by creating an alternative business business, for example, or by creating fascist squats, mm -hmm. because there are also these yeah. kinds of things. People who are just occupying houses for selling these houses to other people. So we need to expand these practices of squatting, which is helpful for the most. So this is one thing. When I see people sharing food uh, with those who have no even access to food in a so wealthy society, I only feel, okay, we need to expand these kind of networks. When I see people who are implementing strategies to fight racism, I think, okay, this is the kind of things we need to expand. Mm -hmm. We need to reinforce and to continue. It's difficult to invent something new mm -hmm. because the, all the reactions to alienation and exploitation are already here, uh, but some of them are not so strong or not so well spread out in society and some others are just in a very emergent stage. So I think our responsibility is to cooperate with these experiences and, and try to contaminate society as much as possible with them so they can be more popular and more supported by the rest of society. They do make many political movements visible and if you just observe how they maintain their space from the outside and the kind of political phrases that are usually hanging from their balconies or windows, including wall art and graffiti as a form of political expression, they always try to foster a sense of awareness in the neighborhood. I saw banners on evacuating Camp Morio, providing housing to refugees, including wall art and graffiti as a form of political expression. 
they push forward this politically engaged discourse in the neighborhood. They try to also offer space for people to organize protests and demonstrations. And some of them try to establish safe spaces for certain communities that are marginalized. For example, women, the non-binary, LGBTQ plus communities. However, in the context of the spaces that I focused on in Berlin, Black people and people of color are not really visible, and even the people that lived in these spaces confirmed this. There's a lot of spatial inequality when it comes to who gets to access these spaces, even if they're considered safe, safe to whom, and when they're considered accessible, accessible to whom. However, many other marginalized groups still benefit from these spaces. I want to talk a little bit about how you bridge between activism and academic work. So among the things that I've heard while working on this research project is being told, don't be an activist. And I'm very critical of objectivity and universalism and positivist approaches. And I've been called biased because of the type of theory that I wanted to cite and whose voices I wanted to include and for incorporating my own perceptions and analysis into research. And like many social scientists, when it comes to analyzing issues in our society, I tend to perceive them through a multidisciplinary lens. So I try to find an intersection between feminist theory, Marxist geography, and critical social theory so I can make sense of the what was happening in these spaces and at the same time to offer an intersectional study of the phenomenon. And this kind of raised many questions on certain academics advocating for value-free text or value-free practices and research methods. So I wanted to ask, and this is something you came across in the academic realm as well while doing your research work, and why is the university or certain academics are still holding to this idea that proclaims that any knowledge that is produced within the university is value-free? Well, I don't believe that uh, knowledge produced by universities is value-free. So even those who claim that they are neutral or they are not politically motivated, they can contribute to political agendas or to private agendas from private companies. Mm -hmm. They can just contribute to the accumulation of wealth in a few hands. Um, So I think at least as a social scientist, we need to disclose the whole industrial complex and political complex behind research. I think to me this is like one of the main horizons. First of all, if I I believe that critical science is possible. So I, I need to understand how the system works. Sometimes you cannot do that as an activist. I mean, activism gives you the questions and uh, in order to problematize uh, the system and also your own job and, and the institutions in which you work, right? But sometimes you cannot do just activism in order to understand that. And you need to do purely academic work in order to collect sufficient data for that. But I think the critical stance comes first. I don't want to do research about any topic. I just want to do research about topics that I consider can be helpful for society. So then I learned from activism and politics to raise the right questions and to express these problems in in questions that worth to be researched. And Mm -hmm. then if they are good questions, then perhaps we need knowledge for understanding these issues better. So in that respect, I think that activism can be very positive to produce good knowledge 
aspects about society. On the other hand, it's more difficult to be at the same time an activist and a scholar because being an academic nowadays means to be constrained by many regulations, competition, expectations within the academic environment. It's a full-time job. It's quite demanding and depressing and with a lot of frustration, mm-hmm. very elitist and unequal and hierarchical. So sometimes it's exactly the opposite of your own activism if you are on the left. And that's quite contradictory thing Mm -hmm. that is not easy to manage. But it's the same for many activists who are not working in academia. They work in companies, they work for the government, Mm -hmm. they run their own business, but they still feel the same contradictions uh, because it's not that easy to be in alternative economies Mm -hmm. that can self-sustain communities. Some people make it. Mm-hmm. But for many of us, that's, that's not a realistic way. And, and then we need to, to manage these contradictions in a meaningful way. So I think we need to contribute to activism. We need to help activism. We need to dedicate part of our time to activism. But sometimes this is not fully possible in terms of working time or energy or your life state. If you are raising children, for example, mm-hmm. I mean, we are human beings. At different stages, I think you have different engagements with activism. But I still believe that... It's a very positive outcome when especially you do research or you do politics with this combination of insights from both activism and academia. Dr. Martinez, thank you so much for making the time and space in order to be on the podcast. (laughs) You are welcome. It was my pleasure. Uh, Very interesting questions. And I hope I can keep thinking on them because they are quite important. Thank you for listening. You can write to me on Instagram and Twitter or at Bushra at imprazethemargin.com. You can find more information in the description box. Stay tuned and see you next time.